The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Well, we're going to come to the Word of God, uh, kind of part B of the Word of God. That was really helpful. Why do we segment thinking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit? How about I pray before we do that? Father, thank you, Lord God, for your presence with us this morning, Lord. And as we come around your word, this life-giving word, this powerful word that transforms, I pray, would you enable us to understand it and be enveloped by its truth and be transformed by it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you've got your Bibles, please go ahead and, and grab those and turn to the book that we've been in for the past seven weeks. And of course, that's been the book of Hebrews. And once you've found the book of Hebrews, just turn to chapter 9 and just place your thumb there. In chapter 9, we'll come to the text in just a moment. If you are new with us this morning, you join us at almost the end of a sermon series that we've entitled Better Than. And really, the, the series has sought to display the supremacy of Christ. And, and we've been seeking to do that by just moving through this book, and we're in chapter 9, as I just mentioned. And so I thought, you know, early on in the piece when I was preparing for this message, that instead of actually unpacking this whole chapter, which we've been doing in this series so far, I thought it would be more helpful and practical just to drill down into one key idea, one central idea located in verse 14 of this chapter uh, so that we can kind of understand and even more than that, experience the, the wonder of what this verse is actually getting at so that we can actually live lives of joyful sacrifice, live lives of grateful surrender because that's really what the Christian life ought to be, a life of joyful sacrifice. And so if you've got your Bibles open now, at Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to jump in at verse 6 and read down to verse 14. As I've mentioned, the key verse that we're going to drill down into is verse 14. But let's just back up for a moment to, to get the flow of thought from verse 6. This is what we read. When everything had been arranged like this, he's talking about the Old Testament tabernacle, the sanctuary. He says, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room. That's where the presence of God dwelt. And that only once a year and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So sins of ignorance here, not sins of defiance. Interesting, verse 8. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been discovered as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration or a parable for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to do something. And what was that? To clear the conscience of the worshipper. Verse 10. They, that is the sacrifices, are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. And thanks be to God, we're in the new order. Verse 11. But when, but when, I love that, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he, that is Jesus, went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. 
He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so what? Obtaining eternal redemption. He's procured our eternal salvation. Verse 13, 14. This is an interesting contrast here. He says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are what? Outwardly clean. Verse 14. Here's the pivotal verse. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences. There's the key word again. Consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve God the living God. Father, bless your word to us. Amen. You know, a movie that always makes me chuckle is the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding. How many of you have seen that movie? Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen it, it's about a Greek family, the Portokalos family, and there's lots to admire about the family, but the character in the movie that I most admire is Mr. Portokalos, the dad. If you've seen the movie, This guy, he's obsessed and fascinated with two things. The first thing is all things Greek. Have you seen the movie? He thinks that everything can be traced back to ancient Greece, that every word in the Western world can you know, trace itself back to the Greek language, and maybe that's true in the Western world. And also his second fascination, it's kind of an odd obsession, is his fascination with Windex. He thinks that Windex is the remedy and the solution for all of life's issues. There's, there's, there's one uh, scene, it's a funny scene. Mr. Portocalos, Mrs. Portocalos, they're sitting there at the kitchen table uh, along a kind of, uh, you know, with the auntie, the Greek auntie and the Greek uncle, and they're enjoying lunch together. And the Greek auntie, she rolls up her sleeve and she says, oh, I've, I've got this rash on my, my arm. That was more Russian than Greek, I know, but I've got this rash on my arm. And at that, Mr. Portocalos, he reaches for his Windex bottle and starts spraying her arm liberally, and at that she protests and says, stop, stop, and then at that he protests, you know, with his deep Greek accent, and he says, no, this really works, and then he says, it's funny, he says, last night my toe was as big as my face, but then I sprayed my toe, and now it's back to normal, and the uncle, he's there with big eyes, you know, his eyes open, he's going, really, kind of believing the story, it's a funny scene. Mr. Portokalos, it doesn't matter what the issue is, the remedy for him is always Windex. If it's poison ivy in the garden, it's Windex. If it's a scar, it's Windex. If it's a spot, it's Windex. Now, what has this got to do with Hebrews chapter 9? This Windex thing. Well, well, not much other than this. (laughs) The sad reality, listen. The sad reality that some Christians, especially in our Pentecostal charismatic circles, have what I'm calling, because I just made it up this week, a Windex theology of the blood of Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? Some Christians seem to view the literal, actual blood of Jesus like Mr. Portokalos views Windex in the movie. That is, they apply the blood of Jesus in prayer to objects and life issues to kind of secure the provision and the protection of God. And so some Christians plead the blood of Jesus in prayer, kind of over their car or over their house or over their finances. 
You may have experienced this yourself. You know, I've had many people plead the blood of Jesus over me because of some illness or sickness I've had. You know, we just pray for Lewis. We plead the blood of Jesus. What do you make of the practice? This, this idea of pleading the blood of Jesus in prayer over objects in order to procure the provision and protection of God. Well, this is what I think of it. Firstly, I don't question the motive of such prayers, right? Not at all. And I certainly don't question the need to pray for protection and provision. We do. But I am questioning, and I want to challenge this morning, this whole idea of pleading the literal blood of Jesus. Kind of thinking that somehow that the blood of Jesus, the actual blood of Jesus, has this intrinsic power to it. Kind of this superstitious kind of power to cover us and protect us. Just on Friday, non from the church, by the way, they asked me, so how's your family? And I said, they're, they're doing great. I said, what about your girls? I said, oh, yeah, they're, they're really good, praise God. And this person said to me, oh, they're covered under the blood of Jesus. Now, <laughs> when we come to the New Testament, the reason why I struggle to accept it is because when I read the New Testament, I don't see it taught. For example, we don't see the Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy, this young pastor who had this you know, stomach issue. We don't hear him encourage him by saying, you know, uh, this is my apostolic recommendation for you. Plead the blood of Jesus over your stomach issue three times a day for three days until the pain subsides. We, we don't see that in Scripture. In fact, none of the apostles taught that. None of the apostles prayed that way, which means maybe, just maybe, we Christians ought not to pray that way as well. And, and so what has this got to do with Hebrews chapter 9? Well, everything, because Hebrews chapter 9 is about what? The blood of Jesus Christ, especially our pivotal verse in verse 14. It's all about the blood of Jesus. But listen to me, not the actual literal blood of Jesus, but what his blood signifies, what it represents. And what is that? His death by love in order to secure our eternal redemption. That, that, that's how the blood is used in the New Testament uh, more often than not. It's shorthand for Christ's self-giving sacrifice, his, his death by love, his, his giving himself on the cross for us to secure our redemption. And so this morning, I want us to kind of think clearly and biblically about the blood of Jesus by exploring these two big questions. Here's the first question. What has Jesus' blood accomplished for us? All right, we're going to just hone in on one accomplishment, one amazing blessing that Christ has won for us. And the second one, the second question kind of flows out of the first, and it says, what's the ultimate purpose of Jesus' self-sacrifice? Why did he spill his blood for us? Yeah, so these two questions that we're going to consider. So the first question, are you with me? All right, so what, what has Jesus accomplished for us through his self-sacrifice by spilling his blood for us? Well, well, it's found in verse 14, obviously in our key verse. Our author tells us this, that Christ has accomplished for us what the old sacrificial system was unable to accomplish. And what was that? Well, we're told in verse 14, inner cleansing, having our consciences cleansed. Listen to what he says. He says, how much more, we'll come back to that in a moment, will the blood of Christ, dot, 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 cleanse our consciences? Now, for us to really praise God for this gospel privilege, which it is, for what Christ has accomplished for us, we first need to understand the conscience. What is the conscience? How do our consciences work? And, and why is this such a wonderful blessing to have our consciences cleansed by the blood of Christ, his, his death for us? Well, 
Allow me to give you this little illustration. The, the, the conscience is, is hard to get at and define because it's not a physical object. All right? With physical objects, they're kind of easier to define and describe because you can see them, you can smell them, you can taste them, you can touch them. But the conscience is a mental faculty. And with all mental faculties, they're, they're, they're really difficult to grasp. And so this is a little illustration for you. Picture this. Your conscience is your internal witness. That's actually how it operates. That's how it functions. Your internal witness who, depending on whether you're living out your values or not, stands as a witness to testify to your guilt or innocence. You hear that? So a little example. Picture this. We, we all value patience this morning. Okay? Let's just pretend that we do. Value patience. And we're traveling on the freeway, we're heading to the beach, and it's a beautiful day. We're in the car, we've got our favorite music on, the birds are singing, it's a clear blue sky, we're on our way to the beach, we're singing along to the music, we're having a happy, happy time heading to the beach, the birds are singing, the sun's shining, we've got our favorite music on, I know I've already said that, but I'm repeating it for emphasis, and we're having a great, great merry old time, and all of a sudden, as we're enjoying the journey, this hoon just skids in front of us. And it causes us to kind of freak out and kind of turn the vehicle. We think that we're going to smash into the vehicle next to us. And so our lovely, peaceful, enjoyable, serene moment has become chaotic immediately. And, and, and then what happens? Guess what? Well, you lose what? Your call. You lose your rag. And maybe, just maybe, you say something about that guy who just cut you off. And maybe you use colorful words to describe him. And maybe you start to think negative thoughts towards him. You know what I'm talking about? And, and, and what is that? You've lost your rag. You've lost your cool. And then guess what happens? Immediately, your conscience comes alive and jumps into the internal witness box in your heart and starts to say something like this. Hmm... And this is a kind of an internal conversation you're having. Hmm, that's the way the conscience always begins when you've violated a value. He says, hmm, now you value patience, don't you? And you're like, yeah, as you're driving along. This is some time after, you're still driving along. Yeah, yeah I value patience. Uh, you believe in the fruit of the Spirit, don't you? And one of those is what? Yeah, and you're having this conversation. Yeah, fruit of the Spirit is abundance of patience. What about Colossians 3.12? Ah, uh, yeah, children of God ought to be patient. And then your conscience says something like this. Then what the heck was that? Like, seriously, you just blew your stack at that guy and used that colorful language to describe him. And it goes on and on, this internal witness. It starts to nag, nag, nag. And what's the outcome? You feel what? Guilty. A guilty is charged, and you hang your head low. And it's all this, always this way when we violate our values. Where that value is generosity and you're not generous. Where that value is purity and you, you blow it again, you, you, you're not pure. Or, or your value is honesty and you, 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 you exaggerate the truth or you don't tell the truth. The, the value that's violated, the conscience that will come alive and actually make you feel guilty. And you sense that kind of inner dirtiness, that inner shame, that, that weight. You know what I'm talking about? We all experience this. And interestingly... Sociologists and anthropologists, they've studied ancient civilization and every single culture, every single uh, people group, human people group, have experienced exactly this, 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 this inner sense of, of filth and dirtiness, this, this guilty conscience, this shame within. Where do you think religion comes from? 
It comes from this place. All human religion comes from this place, trying to deal and handle and erase this inner guilt through regulations and religious practices and trying to appease the angry gods, this inner shame, this inner guilt. And as Christians, this shouldn't surprise us because this guilt can be traced all the way back to where? The garden. The garden where the value was violated. God's standard was violated. And immediately guilt and shame entered the human heart. And immediately that caused separation between them and God. They hid from God. Then they started to blame each other. And so this guilt and this shame breaks relationships. Relationships with God, relationship with each other, and also relationship with ourselves because they saw their nakedness and they felt that guilt and that shame and they sought to clothe themselves. And so that's, that's how the conscience operates. It's this inner witness that makes us feel guilty. Now, interestingly, our author tells us in, in uh, verse uh, 9 of chapter 9, our chapter, that the Old Testament sacrificial system, although it wasn't worthless or pointless, it was powerless to deal with this inner guilt. Listen to what he says in verse 9. He says, The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. In, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10, uh, the author says something very similar. He says that these animal sacrifices were unable to cleanse the conscience uh, if they you know, had that ability, then they would have stopped being made. Uh, but he says, you know, verse 2, otherwise would they have stopped being offered? And of course the answer would have been yes, if they would have dealt with this inner guilt, this conscience, for the worshippers would have been cleansed, he says in verse 2, once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But they did feel guilty. Hence the need for sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. The worshippers realized that these animal sacrifices, yeah, they weren't powerless. They did affect some kind of change, as we're going to see, but they couldn't penetrate. They couldn't deal with this inner guilt. And so the whole Old Testament sacrificial system can be likened, as it were, to deep heat. All right? We all are familiar with deep heat. You get a sore muscle and you apply deep heat. Someone gave me a knee nudge when I was playing soccer the other week and it was really sore and I couldn't move. And so I called the guys and said, can you give me deep heat? And I rubbed it on. It has its uses. But listen. Deep heat is useless for leukemia. You just can't, you don't, it's just ludicrous to apply it because it doesn't penetrate to this blood issue. Cancer in the blood, something else is needed. And that was really what the Old Testament sacrificial system was like. It was like deep heat. It had its uses, as we're told in verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and, and the ashes of, of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonial and unclean, sanctified them so that they were outwardly clean. So it wasn't worthless, this sacrificial system. It wasn't pointless. God doesn't give anything that's pointless or worthless. But it was just unable to penetrate the human heart, to deal with the guilt caused by sin. And so our author says, verse 14, well then how much more? He moves, listen, from the lesser to the greater. If the sacrificial system, animal sacrifices, were beneficial to a degree, they affected external purity, external uh, cleansiness, then surely how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, do this, deal with this inner stain and inner guilt? And how? How? Well, because we're told that he offered this sacrifice through the Holy Spirit, unblemished to God, which means this. The statement's going to be on your screen. It's incredible. It's coming. 
Yeah, there it is. It means this, that Jesus, as the divine Son of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Notice the Trinity at work here. He offered himself through the eternal Spirit. That is the empowering presence of God's Spirit. He freely gave himself for us as the perfect offering to God in order to secure our forgiveness from God. Incredible. You know, I was, I was reading a true account of a guy called Jeffrey Ebert the other day. And uh, when he was a young guy, when he was five years old, he was involved in a nasty car accident. And he's a lot older now. And so back then, you didn't have to wear your seatbelt. They certainly didn't have airbags. And as a little kid, you know, back then you could actually ride in the front seat. Um, my kids, you know, when we do a long trip, they always kind of argue sometimes. They're like, come on, we're tired. We just want to give you a cuddle, mum. And we're like, you can't come into the front seat. Daddy will get booked. He might lose his license. But it wasn't that way back then. And so this young Jeffrey, he was riding home. Uh, it was nighttime. He was in uh, the front seat with his mum on her lap. And they were traveling down this dark kind of alley, uh, this kind of you know, narrow lane. And uh, as they were driving home, this drunk driver, he swerved his car in the opposite direction onto their, into their lane. And the two cars smashed together. And, and you know, Jeffrey kind of recounting the incident, he, he says, I, 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 I don't remember much about what happened, but I do remember being absolutely terrified as a five-year-old because I was covered from, from, from my head down to my toes with blood. And you can imagine, he was trembling. I mean, my five-year-old daughter, Annabelle, when she gets a paper cut, she's like freaking out. She's like, <laughs> I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding. I mean, this kid, Jeffrey, had blood all over him. And so he was trembling and freaking out. He was very confused. Is this my blood? Am I going to die? Well, he later found out that the blood all over him wasn't his own blood. It was his mother's blood. And, and just before the two cars smashed together, his mother instinctively grabbed Jeffrey and pulled him close to her chest and then wrapped her body around his and shielded him. And so when the cars collided, it was her body that smashed into the dashboard. It was her head that actually shattered the windscreen, causing blood from her head wound to gush all over Jeffrey's body. He writes this later, uh, when I was reading this account, he says this quote, she took the impact of the collision so that I wouldn't have to. In a similar but infinitely more significant way, he says, Jesus Christ took the impact for our sin and his blood now permanently covers our lives. We're told in verse 14 that we've been cleansed, our consciences have been cleansed through the blood of Jesus from acts that lead to death. Do you know what he's talking about, those acts that lead to death? He's talking about the evil, wicked things that we did that should have resulted in our judgment. Us being judged by God because of our idolatry. And yet, this is a wonderful illustration because Jesus took the impact for us. He shielded us, the perfect parent. He shielded us, wrapped himself around us, and he took the full force of God's judgment upon our sin, upon himself. That's the incredible thing. And so this is what Christ has accomplished for us this cleansing. He's dealt with sin once and for all. The guiltless one became guilty so that now we can stand in the presence of God as innocent. Our consciences have been completely purified and clean because sin has been dealt with. We don't need to stand in the presence of God kind of in shame because the Holy Son of God was shamed for us on the cross. And now his blood 
metaphorically speaking, covers us and cleanses us. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you experiencing this inner rest, having your conscience cleansed? Are you experiencing the liberation and the freedom that comes from knowing this deep within your heart? In other words, have you broken through, and I'm being really serious here, have you broken through uh, a kind of the, the driven, kind of performance-driven Christianity where, where the result is often a disturbed, guilty-ridden conscience to a more grace-enriched Christianity where the result is freedom and inner liberty? Or to change the metaphor, have you, have you jumped off the treadmill of performance? You've all been on a treadmill. No doubt they're pointless, I think. You're just on the treadmill of performance, trying to please God, please God, thinking that he's reluctant, thinking that he's not really that good and generous, and you're trying to appease him, and you're just doing your religious duty and your religious works, and the result of that is often weariness and guilt. Have you jumped off the treadmill of performance? and instead jumped onto the travelator of grace. Have you ever been on a travelator at the airport? They're amazing. You jump on it, woo, and you still walk, but you move at a more rapid rate. Well, that's what it's like when you experience the grace of God in your heart. There's still motion, you're still doing stuff, but you're carried, you're inspired to rejoice in this liberation that Christ has wrought and won for us. And so this is the first thing. This is, I guess, the, the question. That we've been considering. This is what Jesus has accomplished for us, this inner cleansing. Now, flowing on from that, we have this cleansing, but for what reason? For what purpose? Yeah, for, to have our guilt dealt with. Yeah, to have this peace. Yes, yes, yes. But for any other reason than that, is there a deeper, more profound reason? Well, there is, according to verse 14. Because our author goes on and says this. He says, how much more then with the blood of Christ, dot, 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 cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that, that's very important to so that, so that, here's the purpose clause, here's the purpose of your cleansing, so that you are, we may serve the living God. And so Christ gave himself so that we may be cleansed. Cleansing is for what? Serving. Blood spilt. We cleanse, cleanse is for serving the living God. And the book of Hebrews, chapters uh, 10 through 13, spells out what this service ought to be. It's to be a fully orbed, you know, kind of boots in and all type serving, where we give every single fiber of our being over to God. We, we place every aspect of our lives under his lordship and authority. Nothing's to be left out. There isn't to be this kind of pick and mix thing where we say, yeah, actually, I don't mind doing that, but uh, being generous with my finances, nah, nah, I'm not kind of into that. It's this kind of whole, all-inclusive, wholehearted dedication to God because we realize that we've been bought at such a price. We are no longer our own, but we are his, fully his. So this complete service, this complete obedience to God, all right? However, let me just throw this in. We've got to be really, really careful here when we think about serving God. Because when we think about serving God, sometimes the image that comes into our mind, I think a lot of the time is not a helpful one nor a biblical one. Where we picture God as, you know, it's God up there and we've got to kind of just do our thing and serve him. And, and, and often that can result in a kind of drudgery, and our kind of legalism sometimes, and we lose joy because we've got to kind of appease this God. And, and also, this idea of serving God this way can also diminish the beauty of God in the eyes of unbelievers. 
Because unbelievers can look at that and say, see, I'm justified in my opinion. Religion, Christianity is lifeless. It restricts and strangles life. And so why do I want to be a part of that? And of course, Jesus said, I've come not to do that. I've come to bring abundant life. And so how are we then to serve Christ in a way that honors him? What is Christian service? That's, that's the question I want us to consider as we draw to, a, to an end here. What is Christian service? Well, we need to go to the words of Jesus here. We need to come to Christ. Because in uh, Matthew chapter 6, 24, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts it this way, and it's so helpful. He says, you cannot serve God and money. You read that? He uses the word serve. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus is forming here a comparison for us. And so let me ask you, how do people serve money? How do they serve money? Do they assist money in order to help money out? No, that's a ridiculous idea. And of course, that's not what Jesus is talking about. So then how do people serve money? Well, they serve money because of what money promises, right? They give themselves to money because of the promises that money offers. And what does money offer? Well, money essentially says, if you have me, then you will have life. If you gain me, then you will gain life. This, this promise. And so if you have me, I'll give you your heart's desires. I will satisfy you with a lot of money. You'll be able to buy the new house that you've always wanted. You'll be able to buy the new car. You'll be able to go on those fancy holidays. You'll be able to afford that great education that you want for your kids. If you just have me, then you will be content. And you see, this is the reason why people serve money. They don't serve money by putting their power at money's disposal for money's good. Rather, they, they do what's necessary, i.e. they work hard or some are a little dishonest or some even steal money, so that, that money's power may be at their disposal for their good and sometimes for the good of others. And so Jesus is telling us here, this is what we're, how we're to um, uh, view serving God. This is how we're to do it. We're to apply this understanding to our serving of God. That is, we don't serve God by putting our power at his disposal for his good as if he were deficient in some way. We're just going to help you out, God. You, you need us. No, no, no. We serve God by allowing his power, listen to me, his power, his grace to be at our disposal for our good and for the good of others, which results in what? His glory, his honor, because the giver, listen to me, gets the glory. The benefactor gets the honor. And in Scripture, God is the ultimate giver. He gives, he gives, he joyfully gives in order to be joyfully served by the recipients of his costly love in Jesus. I love what Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25 tell us. I've got to read it from the screen because I should be wearing my glasses, but I'm not. This is what we read. The God who made the world and everything in it, all right, so... There's a lot of lavish creativity and skill and love going on there. The whole world and everything in it, teeming with life, is not, he says, is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God's self-sufficient. He's quite happy within himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they've been eternally joyful and content within themselves. And so he goes on. Since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything else. I love what John Piper says about this. He says this quote. He says, the gospel is not a help wanted ad, but a help available ad. 
Christianity is not God saying, oh, you know, I really need to reach the world. Got to really plant some churches. Uh, your God needs you kind of thing, all right? Kind of enlist. No, it's you're needy. You're broken. You're trapped. And I want to help you. And so this is the gospel. This is help available ad. This all-sufficient, self-sufficient, wonderful God, generous God saying, I want you to come into this love. I want you to know this love because I'm the great benefactor and, and I want you to be the beneficiaries of my love and grace. Yeah? So, so, so Hebrews uh, in chapter 12 uh, kind of ends this way. In verse 28, this is what our author tells us. He says, since then, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, don't you love that? Receiving a kingdom. There's not a hint of slavishness there. Trying to pry from this reluctant king's grasp the kingdom or give us the kingdom. No, no. Receiving it as a gift. The kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be. What's the, what's, what is he asking for? Thankful. Let us be joyful. Let us be full of gratitude because of this king. And so worship God acceptably. This is how we're to serve God. Interestingly, that word worship there is exactly the same word translated in our key pivotal verse, serve. It's the same Greek word. And so what he's saying is to serve God appropriately is to worship God like this, to be receptive. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. And be, and, and be full of gratitude, which is acceptable worship. That's the way we're to serve. We're to serve from this place of gratitude. We're not to serve to try and pry out of his hand the kingdom of God. It's completely different and completely radical. And again, I ask you, is this the way you view Christianity? Is, is this the way you see the Christian faith? Is it for you a, a kind of a, a self-help thing or, or, or a... Um, um, an ad, as Piper says, you know, uh, uh, help available ad or a help wanted ad for you. That, that's, that's the question. Um, it's, it's a beautiful thing that we are to serve God from this place of joy and gratitude. As, as we've been watching on the news just of late, the 12 boys in Thailand who um, have recently been rescued, praise God, and this incredible, pretty much worldwide humanitarian effort to rescue the lads and their soccer coach. Uh, but tragically, as you know, one of the Thai Navy SEALs lost his life in the, in the rescue mission. And of course, you know, wisely, they didn't let the boys know that at the time, but now they, they know. And I just read a re- news report the other day that uh, some of these boys, they, um, after hearing the news that this Navy SEAL had lost his life trying to rescue them, they, uh, they were wiping their tears from their eyes and they were given a picture of this Navy SEAL and they started to write, some of the lads started to write on this picture, from now on we're going to be good guys. <laughs> Wiping the tears away, the tears of thankfulness. And from now on we, we're going to be good guys. And isn't that, isn't that the way we're to serve God? Isn't that the Christian approach? The, 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 I guess the ultimate Navy SEAL, Christ, coming to our aid, rescuing us. We were trapped in the cave of sin and despair. And he came and he lost his life for us to win us, to rescue us, to bring us into the family of God. And so now with tears of joy, we can say, okay, okay, we're going to be good guys. We're going to live lives full of gratitude and service for you. Yeah? And so come on, church. Let's praise God. 
for his incredible grace. And let's serve him this way with every fiber of our being. Could I ask you to stand, please, as we conclude the service? I could ask just the guys to jump on the stage. That would be great. Yesterday we had, as Hill mentioned, the Holy Spirit Day Alpha. And we prayed for people and the Holy Spirit really moved in power and really confirmed his love for people. And, and I realized, I guess, yesterday, I guess like never before, that we can do a lot of talking and explaining. That's the Alpha Course does that. But it's the Holy Spirit that makes these truths live in our hearts. And so I'm going to pray now that these truths that we've been considering may come alive to us and they'll be new to us as we just, for a moment, open our hearts to heaven. Let's do that. Stretch out our hands. Father, 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 thank you. Thank you. Lord, you saw us in our despair. Lord, guilty, stained consciences because of sin. And Lord God, you, you didn't leave us in that cave system, Lord, to die by ourselves. Put together this incredible rescue plan, this rescue mission. And we're so grateful, Lord God, for Jesus, the one who gave himself for us. And so I pray, Father, would you pour out your spirit upon each one now? Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Make these wonderful realities come alive to us in a new way where we may experience and know deep within this inner cleansing. And Lord God, from this place of gratitude, serve, serve you all the days of our lives. Lord, Holy Spirit, thank you. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. As we we worship, just be in that attitude of worship, just asking the Holy Spirit, come.